The Energy Gang is brought to you by Huawei Technologies. From devices to telecom infrastructure to cloud computing and convergence solutions, Huawei is rethinking every link in the IT chain to deliver a better future faster. Huawei is now offering its Fusion Solar PV solution, a unique approach to integrating, optimizing, and digitizing solar power plants. See how to improve your solar project at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I.com. For the week of November 16th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are here live at the American Association of Clean Coal Electricity. Oh, wait, 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 wrong, wrong conference. This week we are live in Washington, D.C. at MDVC's Solar Focus Conference. We are sitting in front of a room of solar professionals. Let's hear it from the folks out there. Send a little love to the people back home. In this episode, we'll be talking about what role utilities play in implementing solar and other distributed resources. We'll start with a conceptual framework in our first segment. Then we'll look at some specific utility programs and proposals in our second. And in our last segment, we'll talk about the investment tax credit, something that I know many people in this room are discussing, both the politics and the business impact of a phase down. We will, of course, wrap up by telling you something you may not know. Let's introduce the gang. You'll notice it's a slightly different gang this time around. Jigger could not be with us. He had to spend some time with a new member of his family. And I said, Jigger, the energy gang is your only family. We are like a real gang, and you're either in or you're out. So we had a conversation, and he's got to up his street cred before he's allowed back on the show. Um, But we've got a great fill-in host. Uh, First, someone who is with us every week is Catherine Hamilton, the co-founder and a partner with 38 North Solutions, based here in DC. She was the president of the Gridwise Alliance. She's been at working for, she's worked for a utility, she's worked in renewable energy finance, so has a really deep understanding of how this industry has evolved. How are you? Doing great, thanks. It's really wonderful to be here. What did you, did you watch the Democratic debate this weekend? Did you... I like fell asleep five minutes in. <laughs> but no, I, um, you know, one thing I did was really uh, watch a lot about Paris because I went to, one of my degrees is from the Sorbonne and so I was feeling a lot for those folks over there. Absolutely. Uh, let's introduce the newest member of the gang, filling in for Jigger this week. It is TJ Diora, Tanuj Diora. He is the Chief Strategy Officer of the Solar Electric Power Association, his second time on the show. He has uh, held many prominent positions in the energy industry, uh, including Director of Colorado's, the Colorado Governor's Energy Office. Tanuj, how are you? Good. I'm doing great. Excited to be here. How does it feel to be in Jigger's shoes? Quite literally in Jigger's shoes. I actually stole them from him when I kicked him out of the gang, and you're wearing them. So Yeah, I'm, I'm worried about what happens if I leave the gang. Am I going to get shanked or something? Is that the, um, so a, it seems here. like a pretty nice crowd. I don't know. We'll, we'll see during the coffee break. Let's begin with a discussion about the convergence of distributed energy technologies. That term convergence always feels a little cliche to me, but it's a very apt description of what's happening. Um, This month, TJ's organization, the Solar Electric Power Association, merged with the Association for Demand Response and Smart Grid to to expand its mission beyond solar. And I'll let you explain why exactly, but the premise is pretty simple. Solar is just one of many distributed energy technologies that is having or will have a major impact on utilities. And many of them are coming together as one broad offering for on-site energy management or for grid services. And I think... uh, 
utilities are starting to think about the businesses business models around this are getting very sophisticated and utilities are now grappling with how to deal with a portfolio of these technologies, not just solar itself. So why this partnership, first of all? What does it say about where SEPA's priorities are and, and where you think the industry's headed? Yeah, thanks, Stephen. So SEPA is still going to be continued to focus on solar, but we're going to expand and build on that focus. So we can think about this as, as solar and, and beyond and what's happening in distributed resources more broadly. You know, this really started uh, a couple of years ago. Our board was thinking about what's going to be next uh, five years. This is two years ago, so three years in the future. Where are utilities and the solar industry going to be thinking about these? what challenges are we facing? And um, really the consensus amongst our board was that utilities will have figured out how to incorporate solar at a certain base level. There'll be a critical mass and acceptance that solar really is an asset and not a liability for the grid. Um, so, okay, so why have a SEPA? Why, could, why would SEPA be useful or helpful to the community? And in those conversations, it became more and more about integration and thinking about not only will, on the distributed scale, these other distributed energy resources be necessary for integration, but solar shouldn't be thought of as something separate. Really, the utility should be thinking about, or, or the whole industry, the community, should be thinking about a whole portfolio of distributed resources working in concert and working in an integrated way together. So that started a couple years ago, um, it just a, a couple conversations at the board. So you board. guys have been talking about this for a while. We have been talking about this for a while. And then when I joined uh, just, uh, just under a year ago, uh, it was clear that at that point, Julia Hamm, our CEO, said, hey, we need to figure out how we're actually going to make this happen. And so just over the, the course of the last nine or 10 months, um, we as an organization have thought about what can we do to really help utilities think about that next set of challenges they're going to face as the industry has the success and as people realize solar really is an asset. Yeah. So where's solar going to stack up here? I mean, some people listening to this might be like, okay, you know, some trade associations are partnering with one another. Why is that so newsworthy? But like, I think it's a pretty big deal and that it shows that an organization like yours that has been involved in the solar industry for so long, has been working with utilities, sees this environment expanding, where is, is solar still going to be prominent for you guys, or are you actually yeah, going to be? Ab absolutely, without a doubt. I mean, we're not going to do any less when it comes to solar. And in fact, you know, we've already been working on some, some issues associated with distributed resources more broadly. So for example, um, storage, energy storage, which one of Catherine's favorites, right? I like bacon, um, is, uh, has been part of the agenda for many of our events, many of our trade association uh, events and conferences and the like. Um, increasingly, inverters can be thought about not just the way to convert the DC power from solar panels into AC power, but actually a separate asset with its own functionality, primarily in reactive power support. Um, so there are, you know, we have been working on these issues and thinking about them for a while. But we're really talking about an expansion of what we're doing, and we're growing as an organization. Uh, we're growing with our membership, we're growing with staff, uh, growing with our funding and the like to make sure that we can um, really grow everything uh, together. So I'm in agreement in theory, but I'm skeptical in practice, right? And I think that utilities talk a lot about this, and we in the industry talk a lot about this convergence and the fact that companies are offering a suite of technologies that could provide grid services, but it's not happening at a, a, like a great scale. It seems like utilities are still thinking about these technologies in isolated ways, not as a in a holistic way, like TJ just described. What do you think, Catherine? 
Yeah, so having lived through the stimulus grant with all the smart grid funding and really pushing that forward, utilities have been thinking about trying to do smart grid for a long time. But one of the pieces I think that this partnership is going to be able to stitch together is the consumer relationship piece. So with demand response, I mean, co-ops have been doing this for decades, have been doing demand response, and in a, you know, more of an analog way, not they're getting more and more sophisticated, but they've been doing it for a long time. And co-ops have a really tangible connection with their consumers because they're part of the co-op. Now with IOUs, it strikes me that bringing in the world of demand response and then stitching it with smart grid is going to really allow the IOUs to focus more on really engaging the consumer. Is that how you see yeah. bringing in the demand response piece? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a big part of it. So there are a couple different ways that, or several different ways that utilities have to think about this, and they're starting to think about this. So one has to do with distributed resource planning, right? And then places like California, that's come from the commission that's actually opened up this distributed resource planning docket, right? So you got the engineering folks having to think about these resources in a more integrated way. Um, and we're going to be doing some research in that space. But Catherine, I think you hit it right on the head, the big opportunity is to engage the customers. So, you know, a few years back, utilities, the vast majority of utility executives or utility employees generally thought about solar as either some cute little niche or something that maybe is a threatened concept, but it'll go away. It's never going to make sense economically. And as the industry has continued to prove that costs can come down and the solar can be an asset, they've really woken up to the idea that, well, maybe we need to think about how to respond to this. And at first, it was a very negative response, right? First, it was a very much a, you know, um, other trade associations were thinking about, you know, what do we do about this so-called death spiral? Um, but I think increasingly, utilities have realized that, you know, if they're not at the table, they're on the menu, is like what we like to say, you know, at SEPA, you got to get out of that mindset of, of thinking about, oh, this change isn't going to happen or we're going to kill this change. You really got to think about the overall system. And so when, when they're thinking about that, it's important for them to think about what are their unique capabilities in order to compete for their customers and make their customers remain loyal uh, and put their load to the utility. And one of the things that they have is the ability to understand that total value package from the distributed resources. So demand response, solar, potentially in the future storage, the smart inverters that I mentioned before. Th this is something that utility is somewhat unique in being able to provide um, the, the, the value, understand the value from a grid perspective, and then also compensate the customer for. And that, that's really where it is, is helping them get smart about how to engage the consumer to make that asset a reality. Yeah, and I would bet that some utilities are going to be much better positioned than others. I can't imagine that they're all going to do this perfectly well. Well, and that's true for solar right now, right? A lot of utilities aren't doing anything, and a few utilities are doing something. Um, so we're starting to hear. So, for example, you mentioned the co-ops. So Steel Waseca Co-op in Minnesota uh, has launched a community solar program. They had an electric hot water heater program for years. And they couldn't get people to take these free electric hot water heaters. I mean, talking about you know thousand bucks for a water heater, right? Installed, they'll do it for free. They couldn't get people to take these. Um, so now they said, hey, we can use solar because consumers are so engaged with solar. We're going to now make it such that if you subscribe to our community solar program, um, we will now give you a discount on the first panel if you'll take a water heater from us. And so they, it's crazy, right? I guess I got to move, got to go live in that, that service territory. I'll talk to Pepco about doing something here. Um, but uh, so they're actually using that engaged, the consumer engagement from solar 
to um, to try to spur a demand response program. That's one example. There aren't that many other examples. There are a few. Uh, Green Mountain Power in Vermont has been talking a lot. I don't think they've rolled their program out yet, but they're really excited about designing a program like that. Um, and there's a few other folks that are talking about it. But Stephen, to your point, I think it's fair to be skeptical because we haven't seen a lot of this rollout. Um, but Catherine, to your point, as utilities get more um, focused and engaged on their customers being part of the solution, uh, and thinking about their customers in a new way, you'll start to see that. And that's what we're really planning to do. We're going to have a paper that comes out in January, February, which is going to talk about the utilities thinking beyond the meter uh, and thinking about customers in a more holistic way. How do you guys think that this will evolve on a policy level? Everyone's so focused on New York and the rev process. Our state's going to grapple with this like New York is. And will utilities go along with it? Yeah, so not every state is New York or California or Texas where I mean, it's these are very much unique more decoupled, conditions, right? yeah. So, but it strikes me that when you start bringing in new technologies, new applications into the full utility package, you're going to actually be able to do integrated resource planning in a much more holistic way. Um, and the utilities, this is going to be an advantage to them because then they'll be able to figure out, you know, what are all the things that we can bring to bear into this potentially new business model. And so I would even think that investor-owned utilities that are fully integrated are going to even be able to look at it more holistically. How Have you seen that with the utilities you work yeah, with? Yeah, they're, they're not entirely there yet. I mean, we know there are a few utilities like... Um, like PG&E, for example, has been doing this with some of their key accounts on the CNI sector, the commercial industrial sector, um, because in order to really do this well, um, right now we don't have the data and the systems in place to be able to do it for the residential consumers. Uh, it takes account being large enough to be worth someone's time to sit down and go through the energy audits and really design a custom system. It's a very, very labor-intensive type of transaction. But with new technologies like what Opower provides for utilities, um, what Nest is looking to do, um, increasingly we may have the ability through data analytics to be smarter about offering those things to consumers. But, but it's been very nascent for sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the utilities so far really haven't been able to do much with their analytics. I mean, they've largely botched their smart meter rollouts and that they promised to layer all these services on top of the, their smart meters, and they really haven't been able to do that. Yeah, I just got a text message from Jigger. He said to lay off. Utilities are great. <laughs> now, I think, I mean, listen, it's been slow. <laughs> it's, but the, the, the technologies are very immature, right? I mean, you talk to utilities, and they say, you know, a lot of the challenges they've had is that the smart meter technology wasn't sufficiently integrated for them to feel comfortable in terms of what the impact would be on system reliability. Right, and so, you know, at the end of the day, utilities have spent a hundred years thinking about safe power, reliable power, and low-cost power, right, or what they call affordable power. And to get an organization the size of utility to change is going to take some time. But you're now seeing increasing investments in leadership, right? You've got folks like Rayford Smith at CPS who talks a lot about big data analytics and is given a broad mandate to do that. Um, you think about some other folks, uh, increasingly we're seeing uh, chief innovation officers. You're starting to see utilities bring folks with more customer service experience, right? Utilities aren't like Procter & Gamble. They aren't like Apple. They haven't had to think like that for um, forever in their in their histories. Well, no, I, I disagree. Um, so I worked for a utility in the 80s. We were super innovative. We had thermal energy storage rates. We were selling ice storage systems. We were doing standby generation rates. We did all kinds of really interesting things because we had to. We had enough base load, but we didn't, we couldn't 
build feeders fast enough and substations fast enough to feed all of the enormous building boom that was happening in the 80s. I was up in this DC area. And so we were super innovative. And the utilities so were the innovators then. And then once everything got built out, that culture went away. And now what's happened is innovation is so democratized and it is so out there with others innovating that now the utilities need to bring that back in. Yeah, so, so, so what happened? third parties are going to be critical to bring in to make this happen. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I think the most successful paths forward are going to be partnership. I don't think there's any, any doubt about that. And I wrote a blog post not that long ago talking about the need for both the, the incumbent and the insurgent in this transformation, without a doubt. But, I mean, things happened, right? They tried, they tried appliance businesses. They tried lots of other things. And a lot of it had to come down to timing, right? Some of the, the, the M&V wasn't quite there. The measurement and verification wasn't quite there. Um, a lot of it was they tried some things, and some things turned to the market, and they didn't have the returns. Um, but it's hard to push. I mean, I don't know if you have a, an example of something that was particularly resonant that um, you think should be duplicated from the past. We'd love to do a case study on those types of things. But I think... Um, it was the water heaters. For a variety of reasons, they haven't been able to, to maintain that. And those kind of investments were perceived to be deviations from the core business of what the utility was supposed to be doing, which was, base, which was central station power. Yeah, but it was a culture. It was a culture of how do we solve gnarly problems? And you know, once they were able to solve it and build the infrastructure, I think part of that went away. And I think we lost some of it. And I think now we're getting it back, but from different parties. So now we're getting it back from the people who are innovating at the edge of the grid, who are like my former intern has his own company in LA now. It's like, I don't know how that happened, but not from me. He's awesome. Um, but that's, you know, it's like a guy sitting in his cubby doing, writing code are people who can innovate on the grid now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're saying that, right? I mentioned a couple of companies that have been really innovative. I think part of that has to do with timing of what technology is available and what can be deployed. You know, a lot of um, the smart home features were built around some expensive display in your fridge or some extra piece of equipment. And those things didn't work, I think, in part because they were really costly to deploy. But now we all have the interface, you know, in our pockets being, you know, your smartphone. And that part of the problem has now gone away. And we have a whole new, now the time might be right based on this other technology that's been deployed that could be very synergistic. Um, but uh, no, I think, I mean, absolutely, utilities do need to change. We are seeing them change, at least some of them. And I think as you get a critical mass of utilities, which is maybe just a few of them, you will see more and more emulation of those success stories. And that's a lot of what SEPA tries to do, is do case studies on those success stories and publicize those amongst the rest of the utility community. Yeah, so let's talk about some specific stories here, try to make this a little bit more tangible. Um, more and more utilities are looking to own rooftop solar and other distributed resources so that they can actually recognize that value. Over the last year, we've seen Georgia Power, Duke, CPS, Tucson Electric Power, and Arizona Public Service all propose some kind of rooftop solar ownership program. And this is, of course, very controversial within the solar industry. Many in the rooftop solar industry think regulated utilities have an unfair advantage because they can rate-base the systems. So far, it's just been the unregulated arms of utilities that have proposed these programs, but I think there's a lot of question about what happens if the regulated utilities can rate-base solar. Um, so utilities, of course, argue that they should have the opportunity to give customers what they want, and that is increasingly solar. TJ, you guys have done some case studies. How anything come to mind that's particularly interesting? I know you guys were in San Antonio recently, and CPS seems to be furthest along. 
do you, f I mean, it's still very early days. The, the platform is coming together, but was there, is there anything interesting that you learned in San Antonio? Yeah, I mean, San Antonio is really looking at this holistically. So not just rooftop, right? But they're also doing community solar. They're doing a lot of utility scale. And they're not getting rid of net metering. I mean, this is a pilot program that exists alongside right. net metering. That's right. So, you know, they, they really, you know, Texas is an interesting market. Um, it, the, the retailers, so the, the competitive market, which EPS is not part of on the retail side, um, really has been competing on the basis of just you know price and what can we do to grab more customers. They haven't really done a very effective job of retaining customers long term, whereas the munis and the co-ops have said, hey, we really need to own these customers. So when the solar finance companies appeared on the scene, they really saw that as, wait a minute, no, 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 you can go compete for the retail customers, but we really... Um, have our customers are our own. And so they've really tried to provide a very proactive, um, holistic set of offerings to get their customers engaged. Um, so part of it is just that motivation of, like, they really feel an ownership of their customers um, and, and, and they've seen a, try to respond uh, to a threat. Um, but I think one of the lessons that, that we've learned from that trip is that it's really complicated. I mean, we asked them a lot of questions about what happens at the end of system life um, and who's going to fix the, yeah, nobody the system. Knows at this point. There's a lot of questions out yeah. there. Um, so not only are they great for nobody making knows those for investments. Party, nobody knows for uh, well, third-party solar providers. That's, provider that's that, right. So. There are a lot of questions that they know they're going to be there for, they're going to have to deal with, that maybe uh, some folks would suggest that the, the third-party financiers you know, have a little more flexibility in dealing with. So, um, you know, they're, they're willing to take some risks, which is very atypical behavior for uh, especially immunity utility where politics get involved. So it's really exciting to see what they're doing. But the other thing they're doing that's particularly exciting is they're looking at this holistically, not just from providing solar energy, but from thinking about being a citizen in the community. And so they've tied a lot of what they're doing to attracting solar and inverter manufacturers to San Antonio. So um, OCI and Keiko New Energy have both uh, located significant facilities and brought a lot of jobs, and they're working on uh, developing a convention and education center in San Antonio that's tied to this. So this whole, they packaged the deal pretty effectively together to say, um, we're going to guarantee some demand through these programs that we're putting out, uh, but then we want some of the jobs and the economic development benefits to be to be in the city as well. So it really is you know holistic, not just from the sense of uh, being a utility, but from being part of the city and the city government. So it, it's, you know, it's an example of a utility saying, we want to seize the opportunity, we want to be proactive, we want to exhibit the behaviors Catherine was, was talking about, um, where they want to be innovative, and, and I think it's having some success. I think there's probably many people in this room who are inherently skeptical of utility-owned solar programs. Do you guys, I know you're an educational organization, do you have a particular stance on what utilities should be doing, or do you just say, like, these, this is a way to do it, here's another way to do it, go figure it out? Yeah, <laughs> or do you is, actually say, like, we believe that these programs should exist and here are best practices? Yeah. So it is tricky because we do not think um, there is one size that fits all for all markets, and we do not think that um, – we do not want to weigh in on a policy or who's going to win within the marketplace, um, but we do want to highlight the different options that are out there. Uh, and so people can choose on their own in their jurisdiction what is the right option for a particular given community. Um, so, so yeah, we, we don't have a stance saying that utility should own or the utility should not own. Um, we actually, in fact, are talking at the board right now about putting a policy statement out uh, on this topic. And perhaps by the time this podcast uh, comes out, we, we may have something. But um, really,
really, again, we see value. The utility is going to have a role in deployment. Whether or not they have an ownership role and what they have ownership of is going to be very dependent on a very specific set of circumstances for that utility, for that grid, for the, the market that they're in. Um, so everything from full utility ownership to um, the opposite direction like they have in Rev you know, could make sense. Right, absolutely, and we want to be supportive of all those deployment um, mechanisms. One thing that's interesting, and I, I think will be interesting to talk about a little bit, was would be smart inverters and the role for utilities to own smart inverters. Um, you know, there's there's like I mentioned before, it's not only uh, the ability to interconnect the system, but then actually provide grid support and potentially save utility costs for the system uh, if we do that. And if the utility owns or pays for the inverter, that actually reduces the cost to the consumer. So that could be a win-win right there. So we think that's an example of a of a model that may be underutilized, but we don't necessarily suggest that as the the premier or the preferred model. Yeah, and also complicates financing because if you're you know, taking hold of the inverter and providing grid support services, like it's very difficult to m map that out in the <laughs> financing structure over a 20-year period of time. I mean, well, it, it kind of depends. So, like on the community scale, so Madison Gas and Electric. I was going to save this for my tell me something I don't know, but I guess well, I've, don't, I've so already don't revealed say, it. Stop, stop, stop. So, so I'll just talk. I got another one. Madison Gas and Electric um, just filed for their community solar uh, program uh, with the Wisconsin PUC. And in their filing, they assigned um, all the solar and all the, all the development costs and everything to the community solar participants. And then with the inverter, they took half the cost and assigned that to the community solar participants and took the other half the cost and asked the commission to assign that to the entire customer base, the entire system, with the rationale being that they were going to get the value. The system was going to get reactive power support that would be um, in excess of the, the share. I think it was 80000 or $40,000 for the project that they had um, that would actually go through. So there's a case where they just said, well, we'll we think the value of the system is X amount. Um, here's the investment we can make, which is better than any alternative. And it was pretty straightforward to, to make that split. So, I mean, again, that's a community scale project. It's not microinverters. It's not string by string. Uh, there are a lot of complications with control. Are consumers going to want the utility dispatching? Are they going to start, if there's a dispatch benefit, uh, how is the utility going to compensate if they curtail generation? There are a lot of questions to be worked out, um, but there are some models that are pretty straightforward and simple, and there are some models that we hope to be helping folks figure out. Catherine, anything jump out to you that's interesting that utilities are working on? I know you've been talking to the folks in Georgia, right? Yeah, I've been really bullish on the southeast and solar because of the clean power plan and the just tremendous opportunity in kind of the untapped market in the southeast. Yeah, and the folks that the work that folks have been doing, you know, locally and in the advocacy side to, yeah, to get definitely. those markets moving. So I talked to somebody in Georgia, and Georgia Power, everybody's been pretty excited about. They've done a pretty good campaign and a really good job on doing utility-scale solar. Um, they're using a lot of old ag lands, paying farmers. They've been deploying a lot of large systems, um, and they started a rooftop solar business that has one. How many customers? Yeah. One. <laughs> they're just starting, Catherine. They they started. Started. Maybe they started. they have more I since yeah, I talked yeah. to her. They're great. They're innovative. They're just starting. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's true. But it actually speaks to, you know, it's so much easier to get financing for and monetize large projects rather yeah. than all these disaggregated systems that third-party solar installers and financiers are much better at doing. So how do you kind of reconcile yeah. that when they... No, I 
I, I think that's fair. Again, there isn't, you know, we would never advocate the utilities should be the developer for every rooftop system, right? I think it is going to be through partnership. And, um, you know, Georgia Power is just rolling this out as a pilot. I mean, we have uh, Georgia Power, somebody from Georgia Power on our board, and he shared some of the, the dynamics. One thing that I found really exciting about their program was that they don't have any net metering in Georgia, and they expect a payback on a system, typical system, to be 15 years. Now, that's not going to cut it in a lot of markets today, unless somebody really, really wants solar on their roof. But 15-year payback is not outrageous for a power system investment, right? So, um, and costs continue to come down. The solar industry continues to do a great job of finding more efficiencies. And so, you know, in a few years, that payback is going to be one that's going to be pretty compelling from a value proposition perspective for the consumer. I, mean, I also don't get the sense that utilities really want to be in the installation game in a big way. It's just not... They're not good at it. I mean, they don't have the experience in that area. They just want to manage the resource. Yeah, another place where a partner could make a lot of sense. I guess the big question that I have that I like to ask people, and I've been grappling with myself, is how much are utilities going to operate and manage on, a, on the DG side? You want to go first? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I've submitted comments to New York Rev with John Wellinghoff yeah. that basically say utilities should be wire companies and, like, let's open up the distribution side to full competition and let all these innovators come in and provide a variety of services in a variety of ways. We'll sort of see how that spins out. I think that is one of the big experiments. And we won't um, know that one for a long time. I mean, yeah, this I think process is moving pretty quickly, but it's yeah. going to be eight to ten years before we really see the fruits of it. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, I would imagine there's going to be some of each of yes, everything right. that happens because different utilities are going to want to yeah. do different things. So. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't, I don't want to answer that question, but I'm going to use the opportunity to plug something SEPA's working on. So SEPA's got an initiative called the 51st State Initiative. And for those of you from D.C., no, we're not talking about Washington, D.C. and any merger or anything like that. Exactly. But instead, um, really thinking of the 51st State as a blank slate with no existing regulatory or statutory structure. Um, and so thinking about if you had this blank slate of how the utility business model and the regulatory structure is set up, what would that look like? Uh, and what would that look like specifically for the optimal deployment of distributed energy resources? Not the maximal deployment, but an optimal deployment, a chance for those resources to play fairly. And so we had our phase one. We launched it at SPI or maybe in November of 2014. Um, and then we got a number of concept papers. Wellinghoff was one of the authors of a, of a, a concept paper uh, that was submitted. Uh, we had about 13 concept papers. And they tended to range um, with either some incremental changes to allow for more open distribution or open distribution of deployment, sorry, open deployment of distribution resources, um, or really revolutionary, like not just Rev, but beyond Rev, right, where um, you see a, a splitting of not only the wires company, but the distribution system operator as well. Um, and so we saw that range. We also, but, but one thing that struck us after we went through this exercise and saw um, what was submitted um, was that really not a lot of folks were talking about the opposite end of the spectrum where the utilities are even more in control, um, where the utilities follow what I've been calling the natural capitalism model, where they partner with somebody like Nest and they partner with providers to sell you not kilowatt hours, but to sell you lighting and comfort and those kind of core things that consumers actually care about. Um, and so I think it was pretty telling for us to, to look at the, the landscape and see a lot of energy and excitement towards third parties doing the utility having a diminished role. And um, the reality is that there seems to be a viable model with just as many pros and cons if the utility takes really control and, and um, owns 
resources on the consumer side of the, the meter where the meter used to be. So, I mean, if you were going to use that as an indication, most of the folks thinking about this stuff are not thinking the utility is going to be in charge and be in control. Um, and they view the utility as being the integrator, not the deployer of these resources. Um, but, you know, I think it's to be determined. I think there is a chance for utilities to say, actually, here is an opportunity. Here's the CPS model or here's the CPS plus model, the steel Lasica model, um, and we're going to own more. And it's, it's still a possibility, but clearly that's not where most of the conversation is happening. Yeah, yeah and you'll have to change the way they're paid because the, the way it's set up now, that's they're right. not being paid to optimize the system and get people right. to buy less of what they're selling. That's right. So it, they, need to, they need to figure out a way to make money other than owning assets and mortgaging them uh, to really be able to optimize and pay for the performance. That, that's absolutely right. And that's a great segue, Catherine, to our phase two, which is to look at the roadmaps of actually how do you get to these future visions. And one of, those road, one of the lanes of the roadmap um, that we've defined is rates and regulation. The utility business model also overlaps in there. Um, and then we've got several others, retail markets, wholesale markets, IT, and the like. And so um, really we're asking now, we're just actually launching our phase two where we ask, again, crowdsource, uh, these papers for people to submit roadmaps of how you get from current utility states to future states, either the 13 concepts or some of their own concepts they might they might come up with. And we've got some great partners. We've got um, uh, a bunch of folks have filled out their notice notice of intent. Some major utilities, um, some great um, uh, NGOs, some think tanks. So we're really excited about phase two coming up here to answer that question. So I believe that that was your backup for Tell Me Something I Do Not Know. So you're going to have to pull a rabbit out of the hat at the end here. I'm on plan C for Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Okay, great. Let's wrap up with a discussion about the ITC. Catherine, you follow this very closely. I know we're going to have an ITC conversation tomorrow, but we really wanted to bring this up because Catherine works on this issue very closely. The two questions on everybody's mind is, of course, will it get extended and how and what's going to happen if it doesn't get extended? Um, many, many smart people are trying to answer those questions, and hopefully we can get to some answers here and, and in the session tomorrow. To the politics, Catherine. As far as I know, there are four potential bills. Uh, Roan Resch outlined them like earlier this month. There's a highway bill, there's an appropriations bill, there's a customs bill, and then next year, the oil exports bill that he said that we could possibly shoehorn some tax extenders into. What do you think about those options that he laid out, and what are you actually seeing that makes sense, that that's yeah, realistic? There's so little time left, I have to say. They need to wrap everything up by December 11th, really. That's, what, that's when Mitch McConnell wants to get out of town. Um, now, they may have to go a few more days, but... Um, so I'm not sensing much optimism in your voice. The issue is that, well, no, wait, you know, I'm an optimist. <laughs> so the issue is first the vehicle, and I was thinking omnibus is a bus. Um, that's the vehicle, probably. So the tax folks, finance committee, ways and means, do not like using big funding bills like that to do tax provisions, but that may end up what they being what they do. Or they could do a standalone. They just don't have a lot of time to get a lot of things done. But some, some uh, sort of different scenarios for solar um, are on the politics side, if they're looking at a longer term extension. So the in the extenders right now, the bill that passed through Senate Finance that most people know about is two year extenders package. But what that means is really one year retroactive plus one year. So it's like the rest of this year plus next year. So that then doesn't deal with solar at all because solar ends in you know twenty sixteen is you know you're in a different cycle. 
So then what do you do? Well, if it looks like they're, they're going to look at longer-term bills, for example, the House wants to do some permanent tax credits like R&D. If you're looking at longer terms and they really want to get a lot of this stuff off of their tables for next year, because next year, sadly, nothing will happen, um, then you're really in a bad position if you haven't done anything by next year. If they look at a three-year package, then solar then becomes much, much more relevant. Um, and you could potentially get commenced construction language in there, which would be great because it would put solar more on the same level as wind. The problem is if you are using a parity argument to try to get solar, we want parity with wind, then if wind is phased out, they're going to say, well, we need parity, so solar will also be on that track. So it's just... There's a little bit of a, you know, finagling on how you talk about parity and yeah. what that means in reality. Well, wind, of course, lost its PTC and then had it retroactively extended. Is well, they that had it for 15 days, yeah. So they had yeah, to, like, so, go so by hundreds of So what do you think the, the potential is? I mean, that's a whole other scenario that we lose the ITC or we see the step down and then we get it retroactively extended. Do you think that that's a possibility? Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping we'll get it off the table, like that they'll be able to deal with it in some way this year. We'll kind of have to see, you know, how their cards go. Now, there are a bunch of other things that are like way above our pay grade that are happening. So the White House um, has certain things that they want to get done. They they have things more than the ITC and PTC that they want to get done, believe it or not. You know, like the earned income credit, the t child tax credit, the American Opportunity Tax Credit, all these things are chits. So the key is you want, you actually don't want solar to be the Democrats' chit. You want it to be the Republicans' chit. You want the GOP to embrace solar and for the GOP to be pushing for it to be in there and to have commenced construction and to have some kind of a pathway, which is why it's really exciting that someone like Senator Heller from Nevada has been a really, really big proponent for solar. And that's why it's really important that Roan and others are out there talking to Republicans because you want them to own this. You don't want to have to rely on the White House and Senate Dems always to be looking at this as a chit. So, um, because they're just too many, and you don't want this to fall off their radar. So, you know, part of what I ask people when I go on the Hill, and I was just up there this morning saying, like, like when you talk about solar, what are the things that are more appealing? If you're looking at wind and solar, what are the things that are really appealing about solar? And some of those things are, is that it really is disaggregated. It really does touch people. And um, and that is very appealing to conservatives. It's very appealing that they could have energy independence through solar. So I think solar has some really, really good messages it can use. And I think we want to make this more of an issue that we're having Republicans push for so that they can make it part of what they end up bargaining for in the end. That's my hope. We've discussed this a couple of times on the podcast before, and that is what the industry should be doing on a national and local level to be pushing their legislators for the ITC. Do you think the industry is doing an effective job thus far? And if not, what could, be they, what could they be doing differently? And if they are doing a good job, what could they be doing that they're doing now, but more so over the next you know, 15 months? I mean, it's really important to go to town halls and raise your hand and say, hi, I'm in the solar industry. And um, if you don't care about this, we'll lose our jobs and their jobs. So when they're district. back home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's really, really important. So not just visiting offices in D.C. Oh, but yeah. Going back yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Is that a better way to reach them? Well, it certainly gets to, like, who gets them there. It's the people who elect them. <laughs> and so if you say, I live in your district and I have a job in the solar industry, that has a huge impact on them, certainly. 
And then, of course, the jobs messaging is the, the most important, you think? Yep, jobs. Um, also, that this is a low-cost solution. Um, I would, if you're talking to Republican members, most of them, uh, leading with climate is probably not what you want to lead, or leading with a clean power plan is probably not where you want to lead. But yeah, if you talk about jobs, this is the least cost alternative. This provides energy independence. We can chart our own course. That kind of thing is mm -hmm. more of a Republican message. TJ, on the utility side, I mean, we're, we're seeing, we're modeling a pretty steep drop off if we see the utility phase out. And that's largely because a lot of projects are going to get pushed into 2016 that maybe would have been developed in 2017. We, we might still see some spillover, but we're going to see like between seven and eight gigawatts of utility scale projects developed next year, and then like hundreds of megawatts in 2017 potentially. Um, do you see any, do you see that differently? I mean, uh, you and I were talking, you think that there might be a lot more that actually happens potentially? Is that Right. So I, I should be clear to say that SEPA does not advocate. We do not have, yeah. we do not lobby. We don't do any of those types of activities. In fact, I should mention, we're, you know, we, we just joined forces with ADS. We're going through a rebranding. Part of that was a survey. A lot of people think that we do lobby. I want to be clear, we do not lobby. Um, and it's important to our mission not to lobby. But to answer your question, um, Stephen, uh, there, there are a few, you know, the SNL database has something like, you know, 13 or 14 solar projects that would come on in 2017 or beyond. It's, it's something like, you know, depending on what you believe, somewhere between 700 and, and 1.5 gigawatts. Um, so it's some, it's, it's not nothing, um, but it's not, not a huge amount in the, what we're used to seeing as far as what's been, been forecast there. Um, but there are some bright spots. And I think um, one thing that's been interesting was that Austin Energy recently had their procurement uh, for utility scale solar. And they put out for 600 plus megawatts. Um, and they ended up contra contracting just for over around 400 megawatts. And their rationale for not contracting the whole 600 was that they think costs are going to come down even further. And so if you hear some of the things that some of the major um, solar manufacturing CEOs have been talking about, um, they think their costs are going to continue to decline and their performance is going to continue to improve. And so um, there should be some market on the utility scale you know, immediately after uh, the expiry of the PTC. Um, clearly, the economics are going to be tougher on the on the residential scale. And again, we don't do any forecasting, um, but we think, you know, yeah, th definitely those are going to get hit. Um, the person I'm filling in for has a pretty strong opinion uh, about the necessity or what the implications for the industry will be. Um, and I think, um, oh, I should also mention at SPI, there was a survey. You guys may have been in the room when, when the survey was put up. And about half of the respondents, half of the participants at SPI, real time, uh, doing the survey on their smartphones, thought that the, the industry would, would be okay without the ITC. So I think there are some indications that, that things will ride through. One opportunities we saw, one thing we heard in Texas a lot that was really interesting was that um, the currently with the structure, and I think this is true with IOUs as well because of the ITC normalization rules, but right now utilities can't do a lot of self-ownership as effectively as third parties can. Um, the munis and the co-ops are not-for-profits, and so they have a difficult time with, now they could find a tax equity partner, but they're not really comfortable with those types of economics typically. So they have a challenge um, in, they have to engage in these, these, um, these tax structure deals and these flips and the like. Um, so the munis and co-ops feel somewhat boxed out of the market of ownership, and the IOUs feel somewhat boxed out because of the normalization rules, making them less competitive um, than third parties. And so um, after the ITC goes away, you may see utilities, IOUs being more 
um, aggressive in that space. But you also might see munis and co-ops applying their low cost of capital that they have and offsetting a lot of the, the ITC loss by being able to be in that market. Okay. So um, now's the time to talk to your local muni or co-op and uh, develop a relationship, get them smart about solar and get ready for uh, the procurement there. So that's a market to think about. And, and I think that the big impact really is in the marginal states, right? There are a lot of interesting states that are coming up. And sure, California might be fine. Hawaii might be fine. Some other states. But like the 8 to 12 states that are looking really interesting right now are going to fall off the map largely without the ITC. That's what, that's what we're projecting. For a few years. For a few right. years, absolutely. And then what you see is that some of the states, particularly in the Midwest with some of the lowest uh, solar penetration, have the... The, the the deepest emissions cuts under the clean power yeah, plan. And so that say, could provide a really interesting gonna, catalyst yeah. for solar. But, you know, we're talking, you know, 2019, 2020, we're talking many years from now when states actually have to establish their compliance plans and then eventually put the rebates in the state level uh, promotion plans in place for renewables. So Can, we're not talking about an immediate switchover. So I know, again, I'm a little out of my, my lane here talking about uh, the ITC and the clean power plan, but I don't, I don't know if either of you have looked at this bonus program, the Clean Energy Incentive Program, and the potential for that. Do you guys have any sense of, is that something that could make up for some of the ITC drop-off with the bonuses for projects that are built in the 1718 time frame? I don't have the answer to that one, actually. Yeah, we haven't, I mean, we haven't really looked at the numbers. It's a pretty small program. It's like the extra credit on the test. It's just a few extra points. Yeah. It's not, you know, there's always the kid that says, well, when did, you know, what's the extra credit problem? But it's really not. Not going to change the letter grade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So. And as you heard in the previous panel, the folks at Advanced Energy Economy are really working on this, so they might actually have yeah. a better answer. Let's finish up the show and tell our listeners something they do not know. TJ, I'm putting you on the spot since you already ran through your other two. You've got to come up with something quick. <laughs> well, I'm going to put in a shameless plug. We uh, have been doing a project with Energy Sage and Mercatus um, looking at uh, installation costs across the country. Um, so with Energy Sage, they gave us data from, I think it was 22 different states um, looking at the uh, the bid cost in under that program uh, under under their their uh, website and um, so it's been pretty some pretty interesting we were trying to figure out some correlations like is the more are the more mature markets cheaper from a dollar per watt perspective um, and the like and we had a really hard time finding anything that was statistically significant um, I'll give you a little preview for folks here um, Maryland and Virginia average install cost from the period of uh, of July, uh, sorry, Jan uh, July of 14 to, to uh, January of, uh, I'm sorry, January 14 to July of 15, 22 states, um, or sorry, Maryland and Virginia, about 350 per watt. So probably what you guys are, you know, installers in the room probably comfortable with that. But a pretty interesting range. And we were seeing prices um, in those locations as cheap as $2.70 per watt. And then someone actually did a project in Maryland at $7.50 per watt in the last, you know, 18 months. So, Who was that? Um, yeah, anybody raise their hands? <laughs> Congratulations. Way to go. Um, and then in D.C., you know, a little higher average cost is probably the permitting alone probably was, was the added 40 cents, but about 390 a watt uh, installed. But we've got 22 states data. That's, that's Energy Sage residential. And then Mercatus provided data for the CNI sector. Um, and, um, and one thing I thought was really interesting was, uh, again, not, not a statistically significant correlation, but um, Florida was the cheapest state to install in. And, you know, as you guys know, there's no real incentives to install in Florida. Um, but $2.50 was the average price 
for a system cost in Florida. And I don't have the number off the top of my head how many systems that was, but it was it was a, a good number, a decent number. And then Washington, that has a lot of incentives for in-state manufactured panels, was $4.43 per watt. So um, plus not very sunny there. So uh, so it's tough there. But um, but that report's coming out um, either end of this month or beginning of, of December. Um, and you can get more insights uh, from, from us there. Catherine, tell us something we do not know. Cool. I thought I would not talk about policy because that's all I ever talk about. So a few months ago, we talked about uh, solar freaking roadways. And I don't know if anybody remembers that show, but we were mercilessly making fun of this entire concept. And uh, so uh, I wanted to, though, go back to it because there was a story um, about bike paths in Amsterdam that are done by Solar Road, and it's concrete modules um, with tempered glass on top with crystal silicon cells underneath. They're translucent, they repel dirt, um, they're strong, and they've exceeded all expectations. So, so far, just this little spot of this bike path in Amsterdam has produced 9,800 kilowatt hours, which is enough for three houses for a year. And I thought, hmm, that's pretty cool. I think we could do that on our bike paths here and actually make some hay. I don't know. This industry's barely figured out solar car ports, let alone solar <laughs> roadways. So I'm, uh, I'm pretty skeptical. Can you combine that with the super concrete that sucks up all the water? Have you seen that video going around on social media? There's this concrete you can dump a bunch of I have of seen that. Yeah. 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 So you can combine the two, and you'd be great. That sounds terrifying. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Are you guys going to factor that into the cost per watt calculations that you put together? <laughs> that is not not in the survey data. So I had uh, a brief mention of a solar alliance that India is putting together with a bunch of countries that we've been reading about in recent weeks. And uh, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been a bit a big advocate for solar, both utility-scale solar and off-grid distributed solar for people who, do, who don't have access to the grid. And they have a massive target, 100 gigawatts by 2020, which I don't think anybody believes India is going to actually hit. But if they hit half of that, it's going to be a big deal. And uh, you know, it shows how, how important this industry is when India gets together with some of the leading developing countries and puts together a solar alliance to say, we want solar to be front and center in the international climate negotiations. And I think that's a sign that the industry has really made it on an international scale. So while people are worried about the politics of the ITC here in the US, there's a, I mean, a lobby, obviously a lot of hand-wringing and serious problems that the industry needs to deal with on a state, regulatory, and federal level. I think internationally speaking, it says a lot when solar is front and center in the international climate negotiations because these countries that need it most see it as the most economic solution. So I thought that was a really good one. And with that, the show is over. You can find all our back episodes on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud. We've got, uh, I don't know, 110 episodes, something like that. Um, we really appreciate you listening. We've got links to stuff that we talked about here in our show notes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast, so you can access all our shows there. Uh, we encourage our listeners to reach out to us with show ideas. We definitely take a lot of advice from our listeners about what we should be talking about, and we factor in their comments to the show. We often reach out to them when they feel like they have something interesting to say. So we like to hear from people, and you can email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Catherine Hamilton, Tanuj Diora, thanks very much. This was fun. Thank you. Really appreciate the chance to be on. Thanks, TJ.